Amen. Good morning. Good to see you, church. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Zechariah. Okay, Zechariah. That's the next to last book in the Old Testament, in case you're still trying to catch up with all these minor prophets. And I'll get there in just a moment And uh, while you're finding that. Man, what a, what a beautiful and great week we've had. And I know you're enjoying the summer and hopefully getting some extra time with your family and friends. And enjoying this um, just heat wave. Wow. Uh, it has been super warm. But uh, hey, listen, at least we don't live in Alaska, okay? It would be terrible to live up there uh, where the sun doesn't shine ever. And so uh, I would rather be here and uh, not complaining about the heat. We don't complain about the heat, do we? Because, uh, because uh, if we did that, then we're going to turn around and complain about the cold when it gets cold. So we just don't do that. We just enjoy the journey. Uh, here in Florida. I do want to emphasize a couple things on the video really that are just, I mean, they're coming up and you want to you partake in this. And the first is connection groups. Um, connection groups are the lifeline of fellowship in this church. Uh, as, you, as you can see, our church is, is growing and there's just a lot of new people and you might feel like, oh, I don't know anybody. And if you sit on this side of the auditorium, you're probably not going to see some, talk to somebody on this side of the auditorium. This is where we worship, okay? We connect in our small groups. That's where you get to know people. That's where you get to share life. That's where you get to have meals and fellowship and make friends. And, and I would just encourage you, if you're not a part of one, get to be a part of one, okay? It's the first line of care and prayer and concern. Uh, it's, just, it's just an awesome experience. And those start a week from this coming Wednesday. Now, this Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, is our final message in the series on the family. And I'm looking forward to teaching on the subject of navigating marriage and parenting in gray areas, okay? And so if you haven't been a part of the whole thing, you can still come out this Wednesday. I think it'll be an encouragement to you and, and instructive. Uh, sometimes, sometimes marriage and parenting is not just black and white and clear. Sometimes you've got to work through some situations and figure out how God would lead you in certain things. I hope it'll be helpful uh, to you. But please get signed up for a connection group. If, you're, if you do not know what to do and you're like I don't even know how to start okay if you just get one of those connection cards in the seat back pocket in front of you write your name write your phone number and just write connection if you'll do that we'll, we'll reach out to you and help you or if you just go right back here to the back of the auditorium after the service to the next steps booth somebody will be there and they will be glad to help you get signed up and, and, and get you on your way to that you just don't want to miss on that it's just too good okay and so uh, I pray you will we're gonna be in Zechariah chapter 9 now, you're going to quickly notice, if you've been following along with me, this is week number 11 of 12-week series on the Minor Prophets. It's 12 weeks because there's 12 books, and each week we've been doing one major themed message out of the book. So we've been all the way, we started back in uh, Hosea, and next Sunday we're going to finish in Malachi. And this Sunday, if, if, you, I mean, if, you, if you've read Zechariah, you're looking ahead, you're going to notice one thing's going to stand out very quickly. And that is Zechariah is the longest of the minor prophets. It's 14 chapters. Uh, it's even, I mean, it's longer than Daniel. Uh, and, and if you've taken the time to read it, which I don't know that many of you do, but if you did, you probably are going to come away reading the book of uh, Zechariah with this one word, confused. Okay? It is confusing. It really is. It's, a, it's not this nicely organized symmetrical book that just makes a lot of sense the truth is most of the book are dreams now how many of you have ever had a weird dream let's just give it up here I'm gonna tell you right now I had a weird dream last night it came out of nowhere I woke up completely freaked out this morning I am serious 
I had a dream that I don't, I don't know why or where, but I was working out with somebody, and they, and, they, and they just had an unusual amount of, you know, veins sticking out of their arm. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you just look at somebody, you're like, that guy works out for sure, because he's got, he's got, like, massive veins. And I don't know why we were talking about this, but he said, uh, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna think this is cool. Watch this. Uh, when I pour water on my veins, they turn into snakes. No joke. And he sure enough did. He poured water on his arm, and, and snakes started crawling all over. And you wonder why I didn't wake up in a freaked out mess, right? That is true. That happened last night. That wasn't even supposed to be part of the message. I think God just gave me a freaky dream just to help you understand that when you read dreams in the Bible, it can be weird. Because the truth of the matter is, dreams are weird. So Zechariah 1 through 6 is eight dreams, and they're all weird. And, and they have a purpose, and I'm not going to get into that today. You can look at it later. It's been well chronicled. So we're not even going there. there. There's too much there to even try. And then you come to the middle of the book, chapter 7 and 8, and you find, uh, uh, you find that Zechariah, this is, this is really the moment where he preaches. And he's going to preach two sermons to Israel. One sermon looks back and one sermon looks forward. And he's basically telling them, this is what you've done in the past, this is what happened, and this is what I'm telling you to do in the future. It's a story of grace. And then in chapters 9 through 14, we're going to look at that a little bit more uh, deeply He's going to talk about the future, and specifically he's going to talk about the future related to the coming Messiah. Now that's where the book gets fun. Did you know that the book of Zechariah is quoted more than any minor prophet in the New Testament? In fact, he's quoted more than any prophet, period, in the Passion Week, the last week of the life of Jesus. So there's more prophecy about Jesus' last week of his life in Zechariah than any other book in the Bible. And with that being said, I want to read chapter 9. You'll quickly recognize when I read verse 9 that you've seen this before. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now you guys all know, if you're a student of the Bible, you know, this is a prophecy of what's going to happen in what we call the triumphal entry of Christ. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey one week before he's going to be resurrected. It's that uh, what we call Palm Sunday, right? The, the, the Sunday before Jesus dies. And this verse is quoted in all of those New Testament references. Now I want to read the next verse because it's good. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. Watch this. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Amen. This is God's word. And today I want to preach to you on this subject. See the big picture. See the big picture. I'm going to make a confession to you this morning. Beside the word stick in the mud in the dictionary, you're going to find a picture of me. <laughs> Specifically, when it comes to public parades and celebrations, I don't do it. In fact, on one occasion, my wife and I were literally in New York City on the 4th of July. Did we venture out into Times Square to watch the fireworks on the Hudson River? Absolutely not. We were on floor number 60 in our hotel up in the city, and we watched it from our hotel room, okay? We don't do stuff like that. And now, with fresh 4th of July, just in our rearview mirror, 
I can give a testimony to the fact that I did not even think about going to any firework displays anywhere in the city under any circumstances whatsoever. I was invited by multiple people. Would you like to join us up in, uh, what was the place you guys went? Amelia Island, right? Pastor, you want to go with us to Amelia Island? No, I don't want to go with you to Amelia Island. In fact, uh, uh, Tito back there, he did his own little firework display really about a half a mile from my house. He invited me. Did I go to Tito's little firework display half a mile from my house? Absolutely not. No, 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 no. I don't do this kind of stuff. It's insane. Do you think I want to go crowd together with thousands of people that I do not know to get stuck in parking lot traffic after the event's over and to watch something in person that's far more spectacular on television? No, you want to you know what I do? Do you want to know what I do on things like January 1st, New Year's Eve, or 4th of July? I'll tell you what I do. I go to bed just like all the other old people do. That's what I do. I go to bed. Well, actually, let me rephrase that. I tried to go to bed. Because, as you well know, the massive 4th of July celebrations on the beach or downtown are not nearly enough for our neighborhood firework technicians. Oh, these amateur arsonists quite literally make our neighborhoods look and sound like a scene from Saving Private Ryan. It's unbelievable. In fact, my wife, uh, we were here, the rest of her family, they celebrated in Kansas City this year. They drove home from their little spectacular firework display and their neighbor, literally next door neighbors, uh, uh, all their trash cans were on fire in front of their house. True story. I mean, up engulfed in flames and Angie's brothers had to smother out the fire and save the house. I mean, this stuff happens in neighborhoods uh, all around us. Even better than these amateur bottle rocket shooters and Roman candle proponents is that they set off fires big enough to injure bystanders or stop the Taliban cold in their tracks. I mean, this is insane to think that somebody with no firework training, no firearm training, no fire training at all, could just go to a local stand and then right next to your house shoot off unlimited fireworks from about, oh, oh, and by the way, it wasn't just July 4th this year, it was July 1st through 4th this year. It's like, do y'all not realize there is one day called July 4th, and I'm super thankful for it, I'm super thankful for Independence Day, but look, we don't have to start shooting fireworks off on July 1st, everybody, okay? And then to beat that, my daughter informed me that my little son Braxton was terrorized the entire night because it sounded like a war zone upstairs. And so, look, people, this is just insane. I, mean, I know there's like, you know, whatever you think is cool about that. The rest of us, normal people, would appreciate if you just go watch it downtown or go watch it at the beach and leave the rest of us alone. Because the truth of the matter is, when you really look at the little displays, the sparklers, the firecrackers, the bottle rockets, the Roman candles. I mean, really, don't they just pale in comparison to the actual show? I mean, really, when you really think about it, what they do, the millions of dollars they spend on these spectacular displays, really makes our little concern over little firework displays pretty small. That's our human nature, though, isn't it? 
we try to create, bother ourselves with, and enjoy things on a small scale when God is up to a much larger and grander scale. And it will be much easier for you in your life to be and stay discouraged if you spend all your time focusing on the little fireworks show that you've got going on rather than the grand firework display that God himself is going. I'm telling you this morning, we've got to see the big picture. It is easy to get discouraged with daily battles of sin, daily struggles trying to lead and raise our family, the daily encroachments of the evil one upon our homes, daily bad news on the television. What I'm trying to tell you is you've got to look up and see the bigger picture. And here's what, here's what Zechariah basically does. Zechariah is going to paint a big picture from Israel's past to Israel's future, and he's going to use it to encourage a discouraged group of people. Now, I want you to look at one thing back in chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1 just for a minute, and I want you to show you something that I think should uh, resonate with what we talked about last week. Look at verse 1. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying. Now, if you compare that with Haggai chapter number 1, what are you going to find? You're going to find that Haggai and Zechariah basically preached during the same time. Now, last week we looked at Haggai, and you can reference Ezra chapter 5 and Ezra chapter 6 to verify this historically, but Haggai and Zechariah were both called by God to preach the word to Israel after they had let the temple lie waste for 20 years. They had laid the foundation, and they had gotten discouraged from what everybody was saying, from the pressure from the political uh, alliances around them, and for 20 years, they had gotten discouraged. God's forgot us. God's not working here anymore. God's not doing anything anymore. And so they just quit. And they kind of rolled up in a ball and, and laid in a corner, sad and moping around as if God was dead. And Zechariah is going to come in with Haggai. And there's, there's a noticeable difference between the two books. Haggai is two chapters. Zechariah is 14 chapters. Haggai is blunt force trauma, like we looked at last week. I mean, in your face. Consider your ways. Change your ways. Zechariah has a completely different approach. How many know sometimes you need a strong voice confronting where you're at? And sometimes you just need a still, small voice encouraging your heart. Zechariah is that still, small voice. For 14 chapters, Zechariah encourages these people that God is not done with you. He encourages them to not look at what's going on around you, but look to the God above you. And to see what God is doing, what God is going to do. And allow it to wash over your heart and encourage you. That there's always a bigger picture. Let me give you three ways in which Zechariah communicates this idea to us. Number one, I want you to see that God, he shows us that God has a comprehensive plan for all things. Somebody needs to tune in for just a minute here today. And listen to the word of God tell you that God has a comprehensive plan for all things. Do you realize that in the book of Zechariah, again, it's 14 chapters. I don't have time to look at the details. I'll give you some references along the way. But in our verse that we read, chapter 9, verse 10, it says this. His reign shall be from sea to sea, 
from ocean to ocean. There's coming a day where this Messiah, who's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, the same one that one week later is going to be crucified, the same one that seven days after this is going to rise up from the dead, is one day going to reign this universe from sea to shining sea. And then in chapter number 6, in verse 5, it says this, that he is the Lord of the whole world. Everyone, everywhere, every time, for all time. What is Zachariah saying, guys? Look, don't let this little temporary problem that you're facing right now eclipse the reality that God is in control and has planned out everything from Israel's past, watch this, to Israel's future. Folks, I want to remind you of some headlines on God's book and in God's planet today. Listen very carefully. God will rule this world. In fact, he is ruling this world. God will ultimately one day judge his enemies. God will dwell with ultimately and protect his people. And God will send the Messiah to cleanse his people from their sins. And then one day, God will come again and receive his people unto himself. That is God's comprehensive plan. It is from creation to culmination or Genesis to Revelation. By the way, Genesis to Revelation is the whole story. It's the pre-incarnation to the end of it all. It is God stepping out into nothing, having existed before all time, and speaking the universe into existence until the day one day that he rolls up this current earth like a scroll and establishes a new heaven and a new earth all at one time. It, hey, I'm talking about it's the beginning and the end and God is in control of all of it. He literally scripted it from start to finish. Somebody better help me up here today. Wait, wait, look, could there be anything more encouraging to you today? He has scripted the beginning and the end and everything in between. And in the end, we know that Jesus wins. That's what we know. In fact, uh, I've, I've landed, I start the book of Revelation on August 20th, and I'll go ahead and tell you. I decided to label the series that I'm going to preach that book. Here's the title. You ready? Jesus wins. That's the story because when you read the book of Revelation, that's the end of it all. Jesus wins, and what is he trying to tell you today? He's trying to tell you that nothing ever can and nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. I love this song. It says, every power on earth and in heaven is a shadow in his light. No authority, law, or government challenges his sovereign might. His reign and rule have no boundary. All that is his hands have wrought. Nothing ever can, nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. Now I want to say one other thing, and I'm going to move on to the next point, because I think this is super interesting. 14 chapters of this, starting with Israel's past in chapter 1, going to the Messiah's ultimate culmination of all things in Zechariah 14. Do you know that there's only about two times in the entire book a commandment is even given? You know, you come to a message like this, you're like, okay, God doesn't want me to worry about the small stuff. He wants me to see the big picture. And you know, some people, they're going to look at a preacher and they're going to say, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. And I'm here to tell you this morning, God doesn't tell you to do anything. 
you start reading Zechariah 1 all the way through Zechariah 14, you're not going to see a lot of commandments to do something. You're going to see commandments like this. See. Watch. Listen. See. Watch. Listen. In our tendency to want to do something, to solve our problems, to ease our minds, to bring peace into our souls, sometimes God has a different prescription for you. It's not that God wants you to do anything at all. It's that God wants you to see and listen and watch what he's doing and let that bring the comfort that it naturally brings to your heart. Number one. God has a comprehensive plan for all things. That should encourage you about the big picture. Number two, God has a compelling love for his people. Now remember where we are in this story. Remember, we are at the back end of the Babylonian captivity. In fact, it's now become the Persian captivity. I know you're probably tired of me talking about this, but you can't. I mean, you've got to connect it all or you're going to miss it out. One of the keys to understanding all the prophets is to understand who they were preaching to and what was going on in the world that they were preaching in. Why did the Babylonian captivity take place? Because Israel thumbed their nose at God. By the way, Israel's been doing this ever since he called Abraham. Yeah, I mean, all the way back to Abraham, the father of the faith, right? He starts thumbing his nose at God like right away. Like lying about his wife and you know, cheating here and cheating there. Then there's Isaac. Boy, he was a real winner, wasn't he? And then, oh yeah, oh yeah, then the third one, Jacob. Oh, he was special. In fact, in fact, the Bible uses the phrase the God of Jacob just to encourage us how much God loves rascals. The truth is, Jacob, his whole name means, or his, his name means deceiver, conniver. He was, he was a guy that tried to manipulate circumstances in his favor all the time. Sound familiar? These are our heroes. Do you know that all your heroes are made of clay? Did you know your preacher's made of clay? Your parents are made of clay. Your kids are made of clay. And sometimes we treat people disrespectfully because we have a different expectation on them than God does. The Bible says he remembers our frame. He knows that we are dust. God's been dealing with dust from creation. That's how you all started, right? That's how we started. He made you out of dust. And then when it's all done, you're going to return to dust. So guess what we are? Dirt bags. <laughs> I know some of you are new. That'll probably offend you. That's okay. Think about it. That's what we're made of. That's what we are. That's it. And then on top of that, he blew into us life, gave us life, gave us a mind, gave us a psyche, gave us a will, gave us emotions. And all of those are corrupted all the way down to the core. And the story just gets repeated. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of your life. It just gets repeated over and over and over and over and over again. Mess up failure, mess up failure, broken promises, broken commitments, broken laws, over and over and over and over again. And yet here we are. Watch this. Here we are. Here we are post-exile after it's all done. They've messed up so bad they literally got taken into another country for 70 years and became slaves to another, another country. They're not even at home anymore. They've literally been ushered out of the land. And here we are, here we are 70 years later, after all that, and guess what God's doing in Zechariah telling them? There's still hope. 
there's still another chance. I still love you. Come on. I still got a plan for you. You're still mine. I'm still yours. I'm still on your side. I still got you. And it's all in the word. In chapter number 7, he looks back and reminds them of where they were. And in chapter 8, he looks forward to what he's going to do. You want to know, I can summarize chapter 7 and chapter 8 in one word. It is this. Grace. And here some of y'all are discouraged. Let me ask you, what are you discouraged about today? For these people, discouragement was crippling because they stopped doing what they knew God wanted them to do because they were discouraged. Discouragement can be dangerous. And by the way, you want to know where this discouragement came from? Listening to the wrong voices. It, were those it was those people around them speaking to them, going to the government around them. I was talking to one of our members this morning, works in a nonprofit. He was telling me how that there's this new attack on nonprofits. They're adding new language to applications for, to, that, that used to traditionally support nonprofits. And now they're asking a new question to all these nonprofits Do you have an LGBTQABC plus minus negative half cent person on your staff? And when they mark no, they get passed over after being funded for years. That's discouraging. That's discouraging. And the enemy just keeps encroaching. And if you're not careful, you're going to back yourself up into a corner of discouragement. And you're going to start being cynical and critical and negative and acting like the world's falling apart. When the whole time what you should be doing is resting down in a beanbag chair of God's grace and saying, look, God still loves me. Amen. He's still on my side. I've messed up. We've messed up. The church is messed up. The country's messed up. It's all messed up. But he's not messed up. And because he's not messed up, evidently I'm not messed up because he's with me. He's in me. He's around me. Come on. He's behind me. He's in front of me. He's beside me. He's surrounding me. He's got me. It's all good. He loves me. And I just need to uh, reorient myself to what he says. I read a story this week about a battle in the Civil War, and it happened on Christmas night when George Washington and his famous account of crossing the Delaware on Christmas Eve, it was bitterly cold, Washington's army was in terrible shape, nevertheless he led them in the night to cross the Delaware River to position themselves to attack the enemy in Trenton, New Jersey, where they were occupied that territory for a long time. Washington's men were freezing underclothed, discouraged, sick, and miserable. And yet, that night, they completed what was considered by many the impossible. They did cross the Delaware. They did get in position to fight the enemy. The opposing commander was Colonel Johan Rawl. That same night, Christmas night, while his enemy was sneaking through the river, positioning themselves to destroy them, Johan Rawl and his men were attending a local Christmas party that night. He never dreamed that the American forces would attack or could attack under such severe circumstances. As he was enjoying the Christmas party, a local farmer who was a British sympathizer came with a message that Washington's men were on the move and were about to mount an attack. A servant met the farmer at the door, took the message inside to the colonel. The colonel was having such a good time playing cards, did not want to be interrupted, he took the note and slipped it in his pocket. At dawn the next day, Washington and his men attacked Colonel 
Rao was mortally wounded and his army was soundly defeated the day after Christmas. As the doctor cut away his clothes and prepared for surgery, that, po- that note fell out of his pocket and the note was presented to the colonel and he read what he should have read the night before and here's what he said right before he died. If I had read this, I would not be here. I wonder whether you might be where you are today because you haven't read this. Could it be that living in the word of God, assuring yourselves of things that are true, fighting the voice of the enemy that speaks lies, like the song says, the voice of truth, right? It says, the voice of truth tells me a different story. The voice of truth tells me, do not be afraid. The voice of truth says, this is for my glory. Out of all the voices calling out to me, I choose to listen and believe the voice of truth. Now, folks, I'm here to tell you, why do we come to church on Sunday? I'll tell you why we come to church on Sunday. Because we need to reorient our lives to what is real, to what is true, to what is authentic, to what really matters. You come in here on Sunday morning and have all the week that's pulling and tearing you apart and trying to stop you from doing what God wants you to do. You come in here on Sunday morning and you remind yourselves of what really matters as the word of God is open. My friend, i got to tell you, you better be doing that on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. You ought to get up in the morning and open up this book and reorient your frustrated, discouraged mind to the things that are real, to the things that are true, because this word is going to remind you God always has, always will have a compelling love for you that never changes. And that is enough for me. Finally, not only does God have a comprehensive plan for the world, And God has a compelling love for his people. The third thing you see in chapters 9 through 14 is God has a complete solution in Christ. I thought somebody might have heard that and said amen, but he does. God has a complete solution in Christ. Okay, all these problems that are taking place in Zechariah have one solution, and it's found in the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus. Chapters 9 through 14 is broken up into two different sermons, basically. The first sermon ends with the rejection of the Messiah. The last sermon ends with the reign of the Messiah. And from the rejection of Messiah to the reign of the Messiah, what is Zechariah telling these people? He's saying, ultimately, our answer is Jesus. Well, it just gets that simple, doesn't it? Your answer is Jesus. Your solution is Jesus. Your hope is Jesus Your forgiveness is Jesus. Your salvation is Jesus. Your intercessor is Jesus. Your rock is Jesus. Your water of life is Jesus. The bread of heaven is Jesus. The way is Jesus. The truth is Jesus. The life is Jesus. The resurrection is Jesus. It's all Jesus. It's the answer, friend. It's not religion. It's not, it's not being a better you. It's not trying to turn a corner, trying to go through a program. It's just Jesus. Now, I'm just going to read a few verses. This is interesting. There's, there's, I'm going to just read five specific prophecies in Zechariah 9 through 14 that should help you see that Zechariah is pointing them to Jesus, and I point him to you uh, as well. I already read verse 9 of chapter 9 where it says that he's going to come 
riding on a donkey. And look at this in the middle of the verse. Having salvation. When he entered Jerusalem, he had salvation with him. He was salvation. Salvation's never been in a work that you do, but in a person. Jesus. When, when Simeon saw Jesus when he was just a baby, he said, let your servant depart in peace. For mine eyes have seen your salvation. It was a baby. It was the baby. He is the salvation. Chapter number 11, uh, 12, verse 16, look at this. Now, guys, y'all, I'm telling y'all, y'all going to have to buckle me up on this one. He says in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, they shall look on me whom they have pierced. Now, um, it, we use a, a translation called the New King James uh, here, and in, in this translation, the pronouns for God are capitalized. I like that. So you may notice that that he is capitalized there. Who is speaking? God. Who got pierced on that cross? This is not rocket science. That wasn't a trick question. God says, they're going to look at me. I'm going to get pierced. Who got pierced on that cross? God. Just like in Isaiah chapter, uh, I believe it's 45, uh, no, maybe, uh, let's see, chapter 41, I think, 41 or 40 verse 3, where it says, uh, my, my, my messenger is going to say, make way for the Lord. Speaking of John the Baptist, John the Baptist was going to say, the Lord is coming. Who's the Lord? Jesus. Are y'all following me yet? What I'm trying to tell you is, Zechariah said, I am God, and I'm going to be pierced. Watch this. That means that God had to take on flesh, because you can't pierce the spirit. This is a prophecy of the coming of Jesus in the flesh. If he's going to be pierced, that means that he had to die. He had to be wounded, mortally wounded. He was mortally wounded on the cross. And if they're, watch, come on. If they're going to look on him whom they had pierced, it means when that's all said and done, they're going to see him again. That means three days later, that tomb was going to get vacated. That means some days later, they're going to see him coming in the clouds and stepping his foot down on the Mount of Olives and ruling and reigning from Jerusalem for the rest of all time. Oh, they're going to see him again. That's what it's saying. They're going to look on me. Whom they appear, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, in that day, because of that, in fact, it's like, it's just a few verses later, because he was pierced, listen, in that day a fountain shall be open for the house of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And can I tell you, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. I'm going to tell you today, when Jesus died on the cross, a fountain was open for sinners. Listen, friend, it's open today. You came in here today, you need Jesus in your life, you need cleansing, you need forgiveness, you need to shed that guilt, you need, you need to somehow take care of all that stuff you've done in the past. I'm here to tell you, there's a place for you to take a bath, friend. There's a place for you to dip, there's a place for you to go. There's a place for you, there's a fountain. It's open, it's bubbling, it's flowing, it's free. It's for you. And it's for me. Zechariah 13, verse 7 says, <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry, I almost skipped one. Don't want to skip that one. 13, verse 6, look at this. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. 
Zechariah 13, 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. All about Jesus. All about Jesus. Now, I'm saying this for two reasons. Well, three reasons. Number one, it's in the Bible, so there, there you have it, okay? <laughs> Number two, I'm telling you all of this about Jesus because if you do not know for certain that you are on your way to heaven, then I'm telling you the only answer is Jesus. It is Jesus alone. He is the fountain. He is the shepherd. He was stricken. He was pierced. He is God. He's the only way. You must believe upon him. But I'm telling you this finally, church, I hope you got the point of the message. I know it was a little challenging this morning, but look, the bigger point of the message was this. Look to God and his bigger plan in your moments of discouragement, and he will lift you up. There's an old book written called Springs in the Valley. In that book, it, was, it had a legend story in it of a man who found a barn. In that barn is where Satan kept all his seeds. Those seeds were stored up in boxes ready to be sown into human hearts. And on finding the seeds of discouragement more numerous than others, learned that those seeds could be made, made to grow almost anywhere. He was shocked to find that seeds of discouragement were almost twice as much as any other seed in Satan's barn. He was able to ask Satan, where one could place the seed in which it would not thrive. Where could discouragement be placed and discouragement not grow? And Satan's answer was this, in the heart of a grateful person. The whole point of this whole message should be, when you're discouraged, the bottom line is this, look to Jesus, look to his plan, look to his salvation, look to his love for you, and let that flood out the seeds of discouragement, because seeds of discouragement cannot lodge in a thankful heart. And man, listen, uh, I'm sure I did this text a tremendous disservice today, but I can tell you this, I can at least walk away from it and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You're bigger. You're greater. You're my salvation. And whatever discouragement I, I carried in here this morning, I can leave it here. And carry away your plan, your love, and your salvation with me. Let's pray together. I want to give a twofold invitation this morning. Maybe you're here and you are discouraged. I have no doubt. There have been discouraging things that have happened to me this week. Maybe you're here and you are in a season of discouragement. You feel like you're stuck. You've got questions without answers, problems without solutions. Dealing with children, dealing with jobs, dealing with people, struggling. Be encouraged this morning. We have a team of people that love to pray with others. I want to encourage you to come. Maybe you want to come this morning and pray for your discouragement. Let us pray with you. If you can't pray about your discouragement in church, I don't know that there's anywhere you can pray about it. Can I get one of our lady prayer team members to come? Let's go. Who else needs to pray? Just come on.